Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Julia LaRose Show. Today's guest is Rick Edelman. He is one of the most influential people in financial planning and investment management. He was ranked three times as the nation's number one independent financial advisor by Barron's. He is also the host of the Truth About Your Future podcast. He is the founder of the Digital Assets Council of Financial Professionals, DACFP. He has authored about a dozen different books on personal finance. He's a New York Times bestselling author, and he's the author of the newest book, The Truth About Crypto. In this episode, we talk about Rick's outlook of the economy and the stock market and why you need to separate the two. We also talk about the state of retirement and what the future of retirement looks like for younger generations. Really enjoyed that part of the conversation. And it was a fascinating outlook on rethinking education and work and work-life balance and what retirement looks like. We also talk about Bitcoin uh, and we got Rick's take on why he thinks we could see Bitcoin at 150000 by the summer of 2025. I really enjoyed this conversation with Rick. I learned a lot and I think you will too. Rick Edelman, author of probably a dozen books at this point, including your newest bestseller, The Truth About Crypto. Also uh, an advisor and one who's been ranked number one independent financial advisor by Barron's three times and the founder of Digital Assets Council of Financial Professionals, among many other titles. Rick, it is so great to welcome you to the show. Thanks for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you, Julia. Thank you. Well, I'm looking forward to this conversation and I'm sure the folks at home are as well. And I was hoping, Rick, we could kind of start with the big picture, more of your macro view today. We're um, about to wrap up the first month of 2023. I know a lot of folks were very pessimistic at the end of 2022. What is your big picture macro outlook today? Well, there's a difference. I'll give you two answers because there's a difference between the economy and the stock market. Uh, the economy is bad and getting worse. Uh, there's no question about this. We're clearly already in a recession or soon to be headed into one. It's been a long time coming. We're seeing massive job layoffs uh, in virtually every sector of the economy. Sales, uh, retail are down dramatically. Housing prices are falling and they're going to fall much further. Uh, we all know the reasons why this is happening. It's been four years in bubbling. Um, and uh, so the, the situation stands. But that's the economy. That's not necessarily the stock market. The stock market, we have to remember, is a leading economic indicator. There are three kinds of indicators, leading, lagging, and coincident. Some tell you what the economy did, others are telling you what it's doing, and others are telling you what it's going to do. The stock market's a leading indicator, means it tells you what's going to happen. The stock market fell last year because it was expecting the recession to occur this year. So the stock market went down before the recession, and frankly, the stock market will go up before the recession's over. So the fact that we are going into a bad economy doesn't necessarily mean stocks are going to do poorly. Stocks, you could argue, have already done poorly. The worst of it is over for stocks. And by the second half of this year, the stock market very well may do just fine. That's a good way of putting it. Um, as you mentioned, the stock market is a leading indicator. And I think that's a really important distinction for folks uh, to make do you ever find that people conflate the two and that could mess them up when it comes to investing or if they see all these, you know, kind of maybe more negative headlines about the economy? Very much so, because most folks don't realize there's a difference 
between the economy and the stock market. And when you look at all the headlines, they're all about the economy. They're talking about rising interest rates and inflation rates on higher food prices and energy prices. And they're talking about job losses and they're talking about declining housing prices and everybody, you know, and all the job layoffs. And that assumes that stocks will therefore all go down. What we have to remember is that if a company does massive layoffs, I mean, Google announced that they're firing 12,000 people. Amazon is firing thousands. Microsoft is firing thousands. Amazon, everybody everywhere is firing. Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan, they're all firing thousands of people. And people say, oh, this is terrible. No, it's not. Guess what happens when a company fires thousands of people? Their costs go down, which means their profits go up. And that's what stock investors like. So what's bad for humans, what's bad for the economy, isn't necessarily bad for stock profits. So we need to separate the two. Otherwise, you're right, Julia, we can make the wrong decision inadvertently. I am so glad to have you on the show, Rick, um, because I this is the kind of conversation that needs to be had and for folks um, to hear from you. Like you have decades of experience in, in this in this business too. And like, just kind of like the way you unpacked it right there so they can kind of understand what does it mean from an investor perspective? Um, how much would you say the economy or the backdrop of the economy, does that affect your investing or can you kind of, you, do you put that aside? And um, are I, I would love to kind of hear, what are you kind of doing in this environment? Are you buying? Are you looking for opportunities? Does the economy matter to you? Uh, the economy matters for sure. Uh, there are a lot of things that matter. Uh, the weather matters. Uh, geopolitics matter. I mean, look what's going on with Russia and Ukraine, with China and Taiwan. Uh, look what's going on in the Middle East with uh, Iran. Um, look what's happening in Israel uh, politically and in France and Brazil. So clearly politics have a big impact. Uh, so do consumer attitudes and consumer attitudes are influenced by their pocketbook. If I'm out of work, I'm not going to be spending money. And that means uh, there's a reduction in retail sales, which has a negative impact on retailers. And that leads to layoffs and it becomes a big issue. Uh, so all of this adds up to things we have to be concerned about. But here's the thing, Julie. It's really hard to take all of that data, which changes constantly. You know, we call them black swan events. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow that could have a big impact. Nobody predicted COVID. Nobody can predict an air crash. Nobody can predict, you know, this crazy weather in California. So it's hard to make investment decisions based on all of this changing news. Therefore, what we need to do as investors is learn how to separate the headlines from our financial planning goals. Instead of focusing on what's happening in the world of Wall Street, let's instead focus on our own lives. Whether the stock market goes up or down, you still got to get your kids through college. You still want to buy a house. You still want to save for retirement. You still want to care for aging parents. Let's focus on the long term. Because one thing we know is that while the stock market is incredibly volatile day by day, over 10 and 20 and 30 years, it's incredibly stable. Stock prices over any 20-year period you want to look at have never been lower. In other words, if you go out 20 years from now, stock prices will be higher than they are today. So if you have a long-term time horizon, that's all that matters. I don't have to care about what's happening in the world today. I don't care who won the election in November, and I don't care who's going to win in 2024. 
because if I'm looking at the year 2050, it won't matter who won the election to, you know, in November or who wins in two years, because by 2050, it'll be old news. So we need to adjust our perspective. And by focusing on our goals and objectives and focusing on the long term, it helps a lot of this noise just go away. I like that. Yeah, the importance of focusing on on the long long term, and um, you're just mentioning, um, you know, financial financial planning, um, which I I read. Um, gosh, which book was it that I want to say is the truth about your truth about your money? Um, in addition to truth about your crypto, um, and you talk about kind of the financial planning industry and how it kind of came along. It, I guess it wasn't something that was always there because you're right, the long term people are living longer too, and they continue to live longer. Can you kind of help frame up? Um, the industry landscape for financial planning? What are some of the things you're thinking about within that space? Well, ever since I left Edelman Financial, the, the financial planning firm that my wife and I founded uh, back in 1986, almost 40 years ago, we walked away from that business last year. Uh, and we are now focusing on financial literacy, financial education, both for investors and for investment advisors. Most financial advisors have been in this business 20, 30, 40 years. The average advisor in this country is over 62 years old. Uh, and so they've been doing this a really long time. And for most of our careers, going back to the 1990s and 2000s and, and the, the 2010s, there was a pretty, pretty traditional, fairly consistent way of doing business. But technology is now growing at such a rapid pace that it's changing everything. And I've been a big student of this, as you know, from my uh, two books ago, The Truth About Your Future, all about exponential technologies, AI, robotics, 3D printing, nanotech, biotech, fintech, the list goes on and on. This is changing every aspect of life on the planet, meaning that if we manage our investments the way that we've managed them historically over the last 20, 30, 40 years, in the past, those investments that were successful will now become failures. We can't invest in the successful strategies of the 20th century here in the 21st century. And what I'm discovering is that most financial advisors don't know this. They don't realize the impact of blockchain technology, of nanotech, of neuroscience. And as a result, many financial advisors, let alone their clients, don't realize that if you're alive in the year 2030, you will likely live to age 100 and beyond. We have never experienced this level of longevity at any point in the course of human history. And we need to recognize that this is changing everything. Many financial planners, Julia, are telling their clients that they need to develop a financial plan that assumes they'll live to age 85 or age 90. Because if you ask the IRS, what is life expectancy today? That's what the IRS will tell you, age 85. TIA Craft just released a study saying that they believe life expectancy for a 60-year-old is age 82. This is insane. This ignores the development of these medical innovations through these technological advances where we're going to eradicate today's leading causes of death. And as a result, by the time you are 82, your life expectancy will be 92. It'll be 102. This has radical implications for how long are you going to work? How much money do you need to save? What are you going to do in your last 20 or 30 years of life, which will be largely filled with leisure? 
we need to rethink the financial planning process. And most people, and certainly including most advisors, don't realize this. And that's where I've been spending a lot of my time. That's such a good point. Like the longevity, how long people are going to live and what are some of the bigger implications? Let me ask you this because it brings up this idea of retirement. Um, I guess people like the typical is like retire in your mid sixties. I guess that's the right, I don't know the exact yeah. retirement age. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mid sixties. And like, you're talking about like, okay, 30 plus more years you'd have. Right. Um, right. Let me ask you this. Do people have one, do they have enough money? Or are we talking about like a very dire retirement crisis? Because I mean, you see the news about like social security. I'm a millennial and I'm paying into it, but I'm kind of of the mindset that I'm probably not going to get any of it. So uh, let me unpack all of that because you've raised a lot of really good observations. Um, first, you're right. People are not financially prepared. Uh, we have a huge retirement savings crisis. There's a $4 trillion gap between what we're going to need and what we have. So people are reaching retirement woefully uh, unprepared. And part of the reason for this is that the people who are entering retirement right now, people to today in their 60s and 70s, are entering retirement not realizing that the ground has shifted underneath them. You see, if somebody who's 70 years old today, they're thinking back to when their parents were 70 or their grandparents were 70. And what they're thinking is, my grandfather never made it to age 70. He was dead by then. He didn't have to plan for his financial future. He didn't have one. Even his parents, your grandparents, were thinking that by the time I retire at 65, I'm dead by 67. You never had to plan for your financial future because you weren't gonna live long enough to worry about it. And you had a house with uh, enough assets in it you had a pension, you had social security, that was all you needed. But today, 70 year olds aren't going to have the experience of their elders. They're going to have a different experience. As you noted, that 70 year old will be alive for 20 or 30 or 40 more years. Do they have enough assets, income, to be able to support themselves for another 30 years? The answer is, hell no, they don't. They're going to run out of money. And what about Social Security, as you mentioned? I have some good news for you, Julia. Social Security will be there for you when you reach retirement, but you're going to have to be a lot older before you are entitled to get it, and you're not going to get as much as your parents did. The Social Security system is under threat right now, and the amount of money it pays out and the age that it starts paying are all going to change. So you're going to have to uh, wait longer than your parents, they could get money as soon as they're 62. You're going to probably not get money until you're 70. And the amount of money you get will be less than the amount of money they get because the social security system can't afford to continue paying all the benefits that it has historically paid. And the reason is simply changing demographics. We don't have enough people like you putting money into the system. We have too many people like me taking the money out. And so the system isn't really working the way that it was designed back in 1935. So for all of these reasons, the short answer is this, Julia, you're not gonna retire at 65. You're gonna be working probably until you're 85. You said 85? I did. Okay, I have 50 more years. Now, this isn't as horrible as it sounds. Let me tell you why. 
Number one, you're going to be as healthy at 85 as you are today, which means you're going to enjoy working. You love what you do now. You're having a lot of fun. It's interesting. It's exciting. It's profitable. Why on earth would you want to give that up? You're going to want to continue working because you enjoy it. Number two, you're going to need the money. So you're going to keep working out of economic necessity. Third, you're not going to retire the way that your parents and grandparents did. See, we used to have uh, a scenario which is very quickly going away. It's called the linear lifeline. The linear lifeline says you're born, you go to school, you get a job, you retire, you die. You do one thing at a time in that order, and that's the way it's been for hundreds of years. That's not going to be the case. In the future, we're going to have a new structure called the cyclical lifeline. You're going to get a job. You're going to go to school. I'm sorry. You're going to go to school. You're going to get a job. You're going to go back to school to learn new skills. What you're doing now at 35, you won't be doing at 55. You'll have a totally new career, something new and different that excites you. And then after you go to school, get a job, you're going to quit, not for a two-week vacation, but for a two-year sabbatical. You'll play with your children. You'll travel the world. You'll reinvigorate yourself. And after your two or three-year sabbatical, you'll go back to school and learn new skills. So school, work, sabbatical, you will do this on a recurring theme for the rest of your life. Waiting until retirement, when you can then take a cruise around the world and have 30 years of leisure all at once in your 70s, 80s, 90s, that's way out of date. You're going to take that 30-year chunk and you're going to split it up in your 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s. It'll be much more fun and it'll be much more profitable. That is fascinating. Um, I wrote, So I wrote down a lot of notes because, wow, Rick, this is, I can already tell you, I think it's a great episode um, because you have a wealth of ideas and knowledge. So in that scenario, um, going to school, work, sabbatical, uh, school, kind of more the cyclical that you're talking about. It is probably so important that a person kind of re- retains this lifelong learning mindset. You can't just get soft. You have to keep learning new skills. That's right. How do, how do you, yeah, because you need to be able to survive in that kind of new paradigm there. It's not you're the right. old way. You're absolutely right, Julia. You've hit on a major theme of my book, The Truth About Your Future, which is exactly on the words you just said, lifelong learning. At the moment, parents are terribly focused on college planning. That, and we're all scared to death because we know how expensive college is. And if we're going to spend 200 grand per child times three children, oh my Lord, our heads explode. Here's the good news. It's not about college planning anymore. In the old days, your parents and grandparents, they could go to college for four years, get a degree in teaching or accounting, and work in that career for the whole life, their whole career, their whole lives, and then retire at 65 and be fine. Not anymore. Because the advancement of knowledge is growing so quickly that half of what you learn as a freshman is out of date by the time you're a senior. This is why employers send their workers back to conferences, continuing education programs, certificate classes to keep their skills up to date. It's not enough that we get a college degree in our 20s and then stop our education. We're going to have to be re-educated on a continual basis because of all the new innovations that that have just come out of nowhere. 
So you're absolutely right. It's all about lifelong learning. It's not about a degree one and done. Yeah. Do you think, um, okay. And because you're also talking about like certificates or conferences, continuing education, um, because like I'm of the generation too, I have a lot of friends who are still paying off like student debt. How much does the, the expense, like college is expensive. I'm here in North state of North Carolina, which is great because UNC, if you're in state, amazing deal, uh, plug my alma mater, but college universities, they are very expensive. Grad school is expensive. So how do you kind of, yeah, the good news is that the higher education paradigm is completely shifting. Uh, college is a disaster today. This is my next book that will come out next year. Um, how to go to, how to get a college degree without it ruining your life. Um, because so many, uh, people have had their lives destroyed by excessive student loan debt. It's $1.8 trillion. We owe more to student loans than we do to credit cards today. Uh, and so many millions of people have student loan debt, but they don't have a college degree. They're not even getting the benefit of it from the debt they incurred. So we have to change it. And it is rapidly changing. Today, you can get a degree at little to no cost. You can get a degree that is in a career that is actually marketable, that will lead to a high paying job and career satisfaction. And it's vital that we shift our whole attitude and approach about going to college. Because if we do it the way you did it, the way I did it, the way your parents did it and grandparents, that worked in the 1980s. It worked in the 2000s. It's not working today. So we do have to totally shift our viewpoint on whether or not to go to college. And if so, what college, what major, what expense, and how long am I going to take to get the degree? We've got to rethink all of it. Mm -hmm. um, I want to bring up another topic with you that we kind of just covered too. And talking about that kind of this generation retiring, uh, folks kind of reaching, you know, I guess they're 60s, 70s, retiring, have another 30 years. And um, you also mentioned that a lot of folks aren't going to have enough uh, to get them through that period. Also, um, I mean, it sounds like I'll get less of social security uh, than this generation, which is fine. I mean, I, I, I have my own opinions on um, social security, but what are the implications when there's been a lot of talk of this huge, like the biggest wealth transfer ever, right? Uh, from, I guess, the boomers to the younger generations. Is that going to happen? Is there still going to be a oh, big... Sure. Let's let's keep in mind that we're talking a difference between the overall population versus individuals. Mm -hmm. So from an overall population perspective, most of the wealth of this country, 75% of it, is owned by the baby boomers. Now, there's nothing unusual about that. You amass assets as you age. You will be much richer in the future than you are today. Your parents are much richer today than they were when they were your age. So it's not a surprise that boomers have most of the money. Right. Boomers are also a massive portion of our population. They're about a third. So there's a lot of boomers and they have a lot of money. They're, they have so much money collectively that there's no way they're going to spend it all. Meaning that when they die, whenever it is that they die, they're going to leave a lot of money to their children and grandchildren. So this wealth transfer, which is going to be coming, it's already underway because some boomers are already starting to die. Uh, this wealth transference is going to be of unprecedented levels. It's going to be trillions, it's estimated it's gonna be $80 trillion. Uh, and it's great news if you're an heir, it's not so great news if you're not. And this is part of the problem. 
although the boomers collectively have all this money, most of that money is concentrated among a very small portion of the boomers. Very few people have substantial amounts of money. So although there's a huge amount of wealth they collectively have, most boomers don't have very much. And what they do have, as you noted, they are going to spend on their own care and support during their lifetimes. So most children are not going to get an inheritance, but there will be a lucky select few who are going to get a ton of money. And you probably already know which group you're in. Gotcha. How much, how much do you, how much do you need to, I mean, this is just like more of a curiosity for me personally. How, I guess if I were retiring today, how much would I need? What, what is the number? Is there, is there like a set number that you need to have, I guess, well, a comfortable retirement? It's entirely lifestyle based. I mean, what's rich for one person is poverty for another. Uh, in surveys, uh, the average answer is $1.3 million. So the, uh, you add it all up, what people say they need. Um, if you've got $1.3 million in savings and investments, uh, you are considered uh, financially independent and able to support yourself uh, comfortably. Now, I want to warn you that some people would consider themselves astonishingly, fabulously wealthy to have a million uh, dollars. Uh, let's remember that half of this country, half of U.S. households, have an annual income of less than $50,000 a year. So for them, $1.3 million is winning the lottery. Others uh, would look at $1.3 million and say, uh, I spend more than that on tips every year. Um, so it really fully depends. Uh, here's what I would basically tell you is that you probably need, look at your income, how much income do you want to have in retirement, okay? Look at how much income today. Let's pretend you stopped working right now. Today's your retirement day. And you want to maintain your current lifestyle. Now, you know how much money you're spending right now to live your life, right? You know how much money you spend every month. Take that times 12. That tells you your annual spending. Multiply that times 30. That's how much money you need. Some people would argue you can make that multiply by 25, but I wouldn't go much below that. So if you're, if you're spending 100 grand a year, you need two and a half to $3 million. And when you amass 3 million bucks, you can quit and live off of your money at your same spending rate forever. So gotcha. 25 to 30 times your spending is your number. Gotcha. Some people, that's a low number. For some people, that'll be 100 grand. For other people, it'll be 100 million. Yeah. It's a good formula, though. Um, I'm going to have to do, like, I'm going to have to work mine out um, after this. Do you, Rick, do you, do you have thoughts on this FIRE movement, financially independent, retire early movement? Yeah, I'll give you two points of view on it. Uh, number one, it's a lifestyle. So when you look deep into how these people are managing to live on very small amounts of money, they live very, very frugally. Um, they often are living in trailers. They don't have TV or internet. They, uh, they don't have a dog. They usually don't have children. 
Um, they are living on extraordinarily small amounts of money. Good for them. If they enjoy the lifestyle, great, have at it. I find that it is an unsustainable lifestyle for the majority of people. So I don't know that, um, that it works for most folks. But if it does for you, good for you. On the other hand, I'll tell you that their principles, the basic philosophy, is a very healthy one. You should live a lifestyle that is sustainable, that is not extravagant, that doesn't force you to live up to the expectations of others, you know, the keeping up with the Joneses kind of thing. I'm not going to spend money only because other people are coercing me to spend it. You know, the problem with your friends when they say, hey, it's Friday night, come out with us to the bar, $50 or $150 later, uh, you now have credit card debt, you know, because of the negative influences of friends. Um, and so you want to associate with people who are going to say, let's go to the free concert in the park. Let's go to the library. Let's take a hike. Let's do something that isn't going to involve spending money, that we don't have to associate spending money with happiness. So the FIRE movement has healthy, positive features, but let's make sure that what it is you're doing is sustainable uh, and fits your lifestyle, uh, both now and in the future. Otherwise, it's kind of like going on a diet. It works while you're on it. And when you're done, you end up gaining all the weight plus, you know, so whatever it is you're doing, make sure it works for you. Yeah. There are principles from it that are certainly valuable. That's a good point too. Um, going back to this kind of notion of like what the future of work, education, sabbaticals kind of sprinkled in between means, uh, we talked about the importance of this like lifelong learning mindset. I know you have um, a book coming out soon. I, I can't wait to read it. We'll definitely have to have you back on when that comes out. Um, but also like this notion of living longer. How much does, do you, do you ever worry or think about like the general health of the population? I mean, there's obviously potential to live a lot longer, but do you think that we're on the right track? Are we are we practicing yeah. healthy habits or people we need to, are, yeah. We're generally on the wrong track. Um, we have uh, an obesity crisis in America. We have a drug and alcohol problem uh, crisis in America. Um, we are, uh, for all of our knowledge and collected wisdom, and for all the uh, experience we've amassed, I mean, we know how to live to age 100 healthy. Um, you exercise, you diet, you get a lot of sleep eight to 10 hours a night, you lower your stress, you don't drink, you don't smoke, uh, you're in uh, healthy social relationships. Uh, we know how to do this, but the vast majority of people don't. Um, we have a, a epidemics in, uh, as I mentioned, obesity uh, and drug addiction. One of the leading causes of death today are accidents. We're just, we're literally killing ourselves by falling downstairs. We're slipping on the ice. We're just being unthinking or lazy about things. Uh, on a more horrible uh, note, the leading cause of death for people ages 10 to 34 is now suicide. Depression uh, has become one of the leading uh, ailments in America. 
And so we have a lot of problems that we need as a society to address, because if we don't, all of these wonderful medical innovations that are being developed that are going to cure heart disease, respiratory illness, and cancer aren't going to do you a whole lot of good if you're an alcoholic or a drug addict uh, or you uh, drive drunk and wrap your car on a telephone pole. Um, so we need to recognize that these are, as a very famous author once said, the best of times and the worst of times. Yeah. Yeah, getting your your health right, also just getting um, your financial situation right as well. Um, on the financial part, I, it sounds like you do a lot of education. I know you speak a lot. You um, you, you do a lot of um, conferences as well. What do you say? Like, what is kind of your your main message? Like, do you have a kind of target audience that you've been talking to? Do do you talk more to like? Gen Z meets millennial, like what, what are kind of some of the messages that you're trying to get out there? Probably the number one subject that I'm being asked to talk about these days is crypto. Um, blockchain and digital assets is one of the most revolutionary new innovations that have come along in a long time. Blockchain technology is as big a deal as the launch of the internet back in the 1990s. And it represents one of the greatest wealth building opportunities um, of a generation. So I've been spending a lot of time teaching not just investors of all ages, but also investment advisors about this because it's totally new and different. It has nothing in common with the stock market or the bond market or the real estate market. It's un unrelated to gold or oil or commodities. Uh, and there isn't uh, there aren't much many avenues for people to learn about this in an objective, unbiased way. And that's why I created DACFP, the Digital Assets Council of Financial Professionals, to teach folks about crypto. Uh, we've all heard about everything else, we, but nobody has heard about crypto. And these days, people have heard of Bitcoin, but they don't know what it is. Even those who own Bitcoin can't explain to you what it is. Uh, and so that's where I'm spending a lot of my time. Yeah. By the way, I, I did, I mentioned at the top of this, I read your book, The Truth About Crypto, which um, I would encourage the folks who are watching and listening to pick up a copy. It was probably the most practical, like easy to understand read on the space. And I think that was probably your goal too, like helping, um, you know, anyone kind of approach it. And so I do recommend it. Let me ask you this though, because um, we're still in a crypto winter. We've had the FTX fiasco, how do, how do those events, how do they kind of, do they impact your thesis? Do they change it? How do you think about those events and the space going forward? Well, they're two very separate events. Let's talk about them one at a time. First is the crypto winter. Uh, as you noted, um, Bitcoin fell 70% in value last year. That's pretty big loss. Um, but what's interesting is that that's not the first time that's happened to Bitcoin. That's actually the seventh time that Bitcoin has fallen 70% or more in value. In 2018, Bitcoin fell 84% in value. Uh, so this happens from time to time. And it's, it's an inherent part of any new innovative technology. You want to have some fun, Julia? Pull up on, on Google a chart of Bitcoin's performance since inception. And right next to it, pull up a chart of Amazon 
and it's I should first. go and maybe I can pull it up on Yahoo Finance. Let's see. Yeah. yeah, pull it up on Yahoo Finance. It's very easy to do. And look at the chart of Amazon stock performance versus Bitcoin. Those two charts are indistinguishable. They're almost identical. It's just the nature of technological innovation. Uh, so the fact that Bitcoin has been incredibly volatile, you just shrug your shoulders and say, well, no kidding. So was IBM back in 1930. Uh, it's just the nature of it. So the fact that Bitcoin fell a lot in value doesn't bother me. In fact, it excites me. I'd much rather buy Bitcoin today at 21,000 than a year ago at 70,000. So this is a great buying opportunity that we all thought we would never see again. So that's good news. Yeah. Uh, and you need to recognize volatility is an inherent part of this kind of investing. Don't invest what you're not willing to lose. And why I recommend you invest low single digits, a small allocation, 1% of your investments. That's all you need to do. Treat it like a lottery ticket. Um, so that's that's one half. I don't worry about the crypto winning. The second piece is FTX. And boy, how horrible this has been. Um, here's the good news about FTX. When the story first broke, I was horrified. All of us in the crypto community were horrified because FTX is the second largest exchange in the world, a multi-billion dollar business valued at $32 billion. And everybody believed that this was a powerhouse of a company. And within 72 hours, it collapsed, became worthless. And we were fearful that this meant that the crypto thesis was invalid, that if FTX couldn't survive, and if it could just disappear in three days, does this mean that everything we believed about crypto was false? And what we discovered in the weeks that followed, to a huge relief to all of us, is that FTX's blow up had nothing to do with crypto. Sam Bankman Freed, it appears, is nothing more than a con artist, nothing more than a crook. He was a scam, just like Bernie Madoff was in the stock market. Sam was using crypto to trick everybody into giving him billions of dollars, just like Bernie Madoff used stocks as a trick to get people to invest with him. So the good news is that this had nothing to do with crypto. The bad news is he got away with it for years and a lot of people lost a lot of money. But at least it was, I'll put this in quotes, only a scam. That gives us reassurance because every asset class suffers scams from Charles Ponzi in the 1920s to Willie Sutton who robbed banks in the 30s to Madoff in the 2000s and now Sam Bankman-Fried in the 2020s. So don't allow FTX to scare you away from crypto, what it tells us, the lesson we've learned, at least the lesson I hope we learned, is that we need to be careful. We need to have uh, precautions in place. We need to do due diligence. We can't rely on the testimony of others. We need to research. We need to uh, recognize that even reputable people and organizations can in fact be nothing but criminal frauds. And if we go about it with that careful attitude and not let ourselves get uh, excited in over our heads by uh, hype, then we can survive in what is, let's admit it, a risky, treacherous environment. 
Got it. You mentioned, um, and we mentioned this at the top, you're the founder of Digital Assets Council of Financial Professionals, DAC FP, I think that's what you guys call it. Right. Uh, talk to me about this organization, the conversations that you have, um, who, you, like, who you're having them with, and what's kind of like the maybe more of like the sentiment within that space, like of are folks still excited about um, crypto? I would love to kind of hear the conversations from that that space. Uh, I've been involved in the crypto space since 2012. So I got in- Wait, 2012? Yeah. Whoa. So okay. Wow. So I've been involved in this, yeah, for you know, a long time back in the early days. And I learned pretty quickly two things that this is an innovative technology that's going to make a lot of people wealthy and that most financial advisors don't realize this. And if the advisor doesn't know it, they're not talking about it to their client and therefore their client isn't taking advantage of the opportunity. So six years ago, I created DACFP as an educational forum to teach Wall Street about this subject of crypto so that they can learn about it and figure out how to give advice to their clients so that everybody can take advantage of this investment opportunity. Uh, because two thirds of all the money in America is being invested with the help of investment advisors. Most consumers don't pick their own investments. They rely on an advisor for help. So if the advisor isn't themselves knowledgeable about crypto, then they can't be offering that help to their client and that's keeping everybody out. And that doesn't do anybody any good and their effort to create wealth. Uh, Bitcoin is the most successful asset class ever. Uh, it is up 10 million percent since inception. Uh, it is the best 10 year, three year, five year track record uh, in the country. And a lot more wealth is gonna get created before we're done. So we created DACFP to provide education. And the, the big claim to fame we have is that we created the certificate in blockchain and digital assets. It's an online self-study course with a world-class faculty uh, that teaches advisors and financial professionals what, what all this is. The first half of the course is all about the tech. The second half is all about investment management. How do you build a portfolio, the investment thesis, uh, regulation, taxation, compliance, and, and uh, so on. Uh, and we're broadening the course uh, in two months. We're launching a separate course for consumers and investors uh, because they have expressed so much interest in this course. Uh, so you can learn a lot more about it at DACFP.com. Uh, and we're even offering your uh, audience, Julia, uh, a discount on the course. It's $879. But when you enroll, if you use the discount code LaRoche10, you get a 10% discount. Cool. Awesome. Wait. Okay. Rick, 2012, that's when you, I know like the white paper came out in 2009. Right. Talk to me about like your, your kind of foray into the space in 2012. Cause gosh, I remember like being a young journalist in and like thinking, wow, I, don't, I forgot what price it was maybe a couple hundred bucks. And I was thinking, wow, that's so expensive or whatever. Can we go back to 2012? What was it for you? Well, I wasn't looking for it. Nobody ever was, right? Somebody introduced it to me. Just that's how we all hear about it. You know, hey, it's all viral. Hey, did you hear about this thing called Bitcoin? And like everybody else who was first introduced to the idea, my reaction was, huh, what? <laughs> Digital money? What's that? What do we need that for? 
But most people I've learned when they first heard about Bitcoin just dismissed it out of hand as a fad or a fraud or silly. I was intrigued. And uh, there were some really smart people talking to me about this. And I realized, you know, I need to learn what this is and how it works so I can understand for myself if there's a there there. And so that's what I spent 2013 doing and began investing in uh, January of 2014 and um, quickly realized this is a transformative technology that is changing how commerce is conducted on a global scale. And I've been trying to help others understand this ever since. Yeah. Do you remember how you first bought it? Uh, through Coinbase and Gemini. Um, and uh, fortunately, I never opened an account with Mt. Gox. Um, oh, yeah, I remember that. that. Yeah. That was more luck than smart. Mt. Gox, everybody's looking at FTX blowing up. Well, back in the day, Mt. Gox was the largest exchange based in Japan. It blew up, it got hacked and $700 million, which at the time was almost all the Bitcoin in the world was stolen or destroyed. Uh, even today, they're still unwinding uh, the blow up of Mt. Gox. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, another follow on, because this was interesting too. Like when you do these certificates or trainings, um, you're talking about like most financial advisors, like they probably weren't aware of it or they're like, they haven't really thought about it. Right. But like, it seems like they could miss out on a client base if they aren't thinking about it. Cause I'm just thinking younger generations, more digitally native. Um, I own Bitcoin. Um, and I, I have other investments and whatnot. I, at some point I probably will do go and get an, uh, a financial advisor, um, you know, especially if I have to start financially planning for, you know, family and uh, college and all that stuff is how much of a, a risk is it? Like, do, do you see like younger generations seeking financial advisors? Are they going that route? Or are you seeing more of them? You know, I can buy my own crypto or I can open an account on Robinhood and I can trade my own stocks or how do you think about that kind of trend in the space? Does Is that something you think about, worry about? Yeah, I'll break it out for you uh, in the crypto world and then in the general uh, advisory space. Uh, in the crypto world, you're right. Most advisors themselves don't know much about crypto. And most of them are not recommending. They don't know how to recommend. They don't know what to recommend. In many cases, their firms won't even let them recommend. So if you're an investor who's interested in crypto and you go to your typical financial advisor, they're not going to be helpful because they themselves don't know anything about it. You probably know more about crypto than your father's advisor does. And so that means you're on your own. And that's not good because you don't have a lot of time for this and you don't know how much you don't know. And you might get caught up in a scam or a fraud inadvertently because it's not your expertise to be dealing with research into crypto companies and funds and investments and what have you. So it's a bit of a bit of a challenge in the world of crypto. That's why we're working very hard at DACFP to get the level of knowledge up so that advisors can be more helpful. And, and in fact, consumer surveys are telling us that 80% of investors are expecting their advisors to be knowledgeable about crypto and 60% say they're willing to find a new advisor in order to get that help. So advisors have no choice but to learn about this. Uh, and they're, we're working hard to help them get that way. But more broadly is the bigger question. Are millennials and our Gen Xers and Gen Z, are they interested in hiring an advisor as opposed to doing it on their own at Robinhood or in a Reddit chat room or at a discount broker? 
um, do they care about using an advisor? And here, what I'll tell you, Julia, is we see the trend that is the same as it has been for generations. And it's a good trend. It's a healthy trend. And it's unchanging. And here's what it is. You, at your age, are far more involved, far, you're paying far more attention to money than your parents did when they were your age, than your grandparents did when they were your age. 20, 40, 60 years ago, people in their 30s did not talk about money. They didn't pay attention to money. They, they merely earned it and spent it. They didn't bother worrying about a 401k or saving for retirement or thinking about the best way to buy or lease a car or coming with a down payment on a house. It just wasn't on radar for my generation and people older than me. You have a better awareness and understanding of the importance of saving for the future. You are saddled with student loan debt and credit card debt. You know the challenges of the cost of living today. You know the economic issues associated with having a baby and raising children. And all of that is causing you in a good way to pay attention to money in a way that your parents and grandparents did not. You also have the benefit of their experience. You see them and their lifestyle struggling, or maybe they are sharing with you the lessons they've learned where they wish they paid attention when they were your age, and they're admonishing you to do a better job than they did themselves. So all of that is good. But when you go to implement that, chances are you're gonna do it on your own. You have the attitude that you don't want an advisor. You don't need an advisor. You don't wanna spend the money on an advisor. Your situation isn't complicated. You don't have a lot of houses. You don't have a lot of kids. You don't have a lot of money. All you wanna do are find good investments. And you can do that at Robinhood pretty easily. You can do that at Acorns. You can do that at Schwab. You can do that in a Reddit chat room. You don't need an advisor. You're wrong, but that's your attitude. And it's okay. It means you're engaged. You own investments. You have a brokerage accounts. You're trading stocks. You're buying crypto. You're even talking to your friends about it, just like you talk about sports and the weather and fashion and Hollywood. You also talk about money and investments. It's wonderful. It's great. Here's what's going to happen, Julia. Fast forward 10 years when you're 45. 10 years after that, when you're 55. In your 40s, you're going to have a house. You're going to have a spouse you're probably going to have kids. When you're in your 55, you're going to start thinking about retirement. You're going to start noticing that old college classmates are dying, that elders are dying. And you're going to start to say to yourself two things. One, gee, maybe I'm not immortal after all. Number two, maybe I don't want to keep working as hard as I'm working. Maybe I want to start enjoying myself. And that means maybe I ought to take the money that I've amassed, and over the next 20 years, you're going to amass a lot of money because you're a good saver and your investments are going to do well, and you're going to end up with six figures, maybe even seven figures by the time you're in your 50s. And at that point, with a spouse and children and a lot of money, you're going to say to yourself, I'm not sure I know what I'm doing. I'm not sure I have all the time to spend on this. I'm not sure I want to spend my time with that. And even though I might be pretty good with investments, I don't know a lot about taxes. I don't know a lot about estate planning. I don't know a lot about insurance. I don't know a lot about mortgages. And those are the subjects that a financial advisor can help me with. 
And that is when you will decide that you're ready to hire a financial advisor. Yeah. What would you say would be like the number one question from like a client's perspective to ask, like when they're seeking a financial advisor? What are the services you provide and who do you generally provide them to? Those are the two key questions because there are lots of different kinds of advisors. Think about it like doctors. You want to know, doctor, what kind of a doctor are you? If you're an oncologist, I don't know that I need to hire you. I'm looking for um, an obstetrician or I'm looking for a general practitioner. I'm looking for a podiatrist. I want to know what kind of a doctor are you? As a financial advisor, what kind of services do you provide? Some advisors only do investments. Others do financial planning. So you want to know, what do you do? Do is what you do the kind of thing I need. Number two, who do you do it for? Some advisors work with billionaires. Others work with Fortune 500 executives. Some work with divorcees or widows or school teachers. I know an advisor, he only works with pilots of uh, Delta Airlines. If you're not a pilot at Delta Airlines, he won't take you as a client. I know another advisor who only works with employees of Marriott. His office is across the street from their world headquarters. Now, if you're an employee of Marriott, you want to hire this guy because he knows Marriott's employee benefits program like nobody else. But if you're not an, a Marriott employee, he's the wrong advisor for you. So you, you want to know two things. What are the services you provide and who do you provide them to? I'm looking for someone who does what I need for people like me. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Um, we only have a few minutes left and maybe I'll just get some more like outlook stuff from you. So back to Bitcoin, um, you were mentioning like probably a pretty good time to be buying. Um, I don't know if you're buying, I, gosh, I probably bought, I think the last time I bought was like October or something. I don't know. Um, are you buying during this time? And do you have like an outlook on where we'll be? I don't know. I don't even know if you do those outlooks like in the next year. What are you kind of looking for there? Well, I'm on record of saying that I believe that by the summer of 25, two and a half years from now, Bitcoin will be 150,000. 150,000 by summer of 25. Yeah. How do you, how do you get there? Like what is kind of your, how do you kind of come to that number? So there are three reasons. Um, number one, we are seeing, uh, a, because of FTX, a huge new level of attention in Washington from Congress and regulators. Uh, we all realize that there's not enough regulation. There are too few laws to protect investors. And this is what helped to allow the FTX scam to occur. So we're going to see over the next year and a half, a whole new round of legislation and regulation that is going to protect consumers. And more importantly, it'll provide rules of the road. Companies will know how to operate within a legal framework. Those rules do not exist today. And many of the biggest financial companies, brokerage firms, banks, insurance companies, are staying away from crypto. They're not engaging because they don't know how, they don't know what they're allowed to do. So when these rules come out, institutions, I'm talking about companies like Merrill Lynch, Bank of America, UBS, Wells Fargo, 
American Express. These companies will now be willing to enter this field because they'll know that they won't get in trouble because they'll know what the rules of the road are. It's kind of like saying, I got this car, but I'm afraid to drive it on the highway because I don't know what the speed limit is and I don't want to get in trouble. Well, once you post the speed limit, hey, I, whether the speed limit is 85 or 45, I don't care. Just tell me the speed limit and I'll observe the rule. And that's what Wall Street, the financial services industry is waiting for. So that's coming over the next uh, couple of years. Rules of the road, which will allow the institutions to engage. And when they engage with their trillions of dollars of assets, the huge supply of money, the huge demand that it's going to create is going to be wonderful for the value of crypto. Those are two reasons. The third reason is the heaven. Every four years, the number of Bitcoin that get produced uh, through Bitcoin mining gets cut in half. Bitcoin mining is how the Bitcoin network gets validated, authenticated, and secured. Uh, the miners are rewarded by something called a block reward. Every 10 minutes, there's a reward. And that reward uh, started out in 2009 at 50 Bitcoins. That was a lot of Bitcoin every 10 minutes. They were worthless. There was no value to them. So it was 50 of nothing. Four years later, it was cut from 50 to 25. Then in 2016, it was cut again to 12 and a half. And then in 2020, it was cut again to six and a quarter, which is where it is now. In 2024, March 22nd, 2024, it'll get cut again from six and a half to three and an eighth. Every time the number of Bitcoins gets cut in the Bitcoin reward, every time it gets cut in half, the value of Bitcoin doubles. Because your attitude is, you're only giving me half of as many as before. I want each one to be worth twice as much so that my economics are not harmed. So when you do the math historically with all the prior Bitcoin halvings, it suggests that by the summer of 25, a year and a half after the halving, uh, Bitcoin's price rises dramatically. When you do the mathematical calculation, you end up at about 150,000. So between institutional involvement, the Bitcoin halving, I think we're going to see. Bitcoin's biggest days yet to come. Wow, 150,000. And um, one final question, maybe it's a way to like tie this up. We started this out with talking about the economy and the stock market being two separate things um, that we're probably already in a recession. What's your outlook for the stock market this year? Do you think we'll see a much better year than last year? Do you have a price target? What's kind of your thought there? Nothing would surprise me. 20% um, decline, a 20% gain. I think we're going to have volatility. I wouldn't be surprised if we see some significant declines in the first half of the year, but by the end of the year, I think stock prices will be higher. More importantly, as I mentioned earlier, it doesn't make any difference. You should be investing with a 10 or a 20 or a 30 year horizon. What happens in the next 12 months should not make any difference to you at all. So many great lessons here, Rick. Um, if you have anything you want to say, um, or plug or let folks know where they can find you. I know you shared that discount code, uh, LaRoche10. Um, if you want to take the next minute, just to let folks know where they can find you or learn more. Um, uh, give you I encourage you to listen to my daily podcast, uh, which you can get at the truthaboutyourfuture.com, the T-A-Y-F.com, uh, otherwise known as the truthaYF.com. Uh, every day I've got a short five or 10 minute podcast um, that tells you what you need to know about the personal finance topics that matter today. And you can uh, read my books, uh, The Truth About Crypto, The Truth About Your Future, The Truth About Money, 
And uh, we even have a children's book, The Squirrel Manifesto, teaching children four to eight years old about money. So happy to provide you the financial education you need so that you can develop your own prosperity and wealth in the future. Well, thank you so much for helping all of us learn. Really enjoyed this conversation. Really appreciate you being so generous with your time and your ideas. Rick Edelman, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been my pleasure, Julia. Thank you. Hey, everyone. I really hope you enjoyed that video. Be sure to hit that like button, the subscribe, and that bell so you won't miss any new videos.